Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Eric Stoyer. And today on the show, we've got Richard Kelly. In, uh, in 2001, when, when Richard Kelly was about 25, he released his debut feature, which was Donnie Darko, which I, I think that's one of the signature indie movies of that early 2000s era, right? It's, it's in terms of its look and its tone and its casting and its music and its, its overall vibe. Uh, about five years later, in 2006, he directed a movie called Southland Tales, and that's that's what we're going to be talking about here today. It's this, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's like a sprawling, dystopian, sci-fi, dark comedy, satire, social commentary. It's just a lot, and it has this wild cast, very much a cast of its time. Uh, Dwayne Johnson is uh, one of his early starring roles. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Sean William Scott, Mandy Moore... Justin Timberlake, lots and lots and lots of character actors and comedians in smaller roles, too. It's one of those movies where people keep popping up. So yeah, in 2006, he brought an unfinished version of Southland Tales to the Cannes Film Festival, and that did not go great. It's become almost like one of those uh, legendary stories where there's just this crazy, awful screening, and people are walking out and booing, and critics hated it, and Roger Ebert called it one of the worst screenings ever at Cannes, so that's not good. Uh, Richard did find a buyer and a distributor in Sony, and so he brought Southland Tales back home from the festival to L.A. and worked on it for a bit longer, finishing up the special effects and editing the length down quite a lot. Around that time, I was uh, working for Wired Magazine, and I pitched a story about Richard and Southland Tales. I was especially interested in just how ambitious it was and how it was interested in telling this big, weird story across all different kinds of media. So he was going to be telling part of the story on a website, part of it in this film, and then part of it through a series of graphic novels he was putting together. So I got to spend about a day with him back then. He was working on getting the movie into shape for theatrical release, and then a few months later I got to go down to a small uh, premiere. When the movie came out, it did not do much. It had a really limited release, and it just kind of fell out of people's memory for a bit. But like many things do these days, over time, Southland Tales built up an audience, and there are lots and lots of people who love the movie today, uh, me included. And so I was very interested to hear that he was releasing on Blu-ray the can cut of Southland Tales. And this is the version of the movie then with the unfinished effects, the one that is not really edited, and the version of the movie that he brought to Cannes had a negative, terrible reception. So I wanted to hear what the idea was there. Why, why was he putting this out? But I also wanted to just catch up and hear what was going on with him. What I did not expect is that Richard is not only still thinking about this movie quite a lot, but he's like tripling down and basically all throughout the pandemic, he's been at home writing more Southland tales and he wants to expand the movie in some way so that it's like even bigger and crazier. One thing I read with him is that uh, said that he wanted to, to make it like a six hour movie. Uh, okay. It was, it was fun to talk to Richard. He's a nice guy, thoughtful, super smart, and obviously obsessed with his work and the Southland Tales specifically, which I think is really interesting. You can hit me up at eric at moviemaker.com. And now, Richard Kelly. It's been a while. It's been about 15 years because I, I, I was working at Wired and I came down... Uh, to talk to you when you were you were editing Southland Tales. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember when you came down, and it's funny because um, we actually have a, we use a, a prop of Wired magazine in the film as a prop with with Wallace Shawn on the cover of Wired magazine as Baron von Westphalen, looking very serious and uh, uh, menacing on the cover of Wired of a, of a fictional Wired magazine from the 
so that was a fun prop to do. I remember it was, I think the mixing stage you might've come to uh, on Wilshire. Yeah, exactly. It was like a tiny studio on Wilshire. Post-production, never-ending post-production uh, drama on getting the film, you know, it was, it's never been finished, but it, we were trying to get it, you know, we, at the time we were trying to get it further along. <laughs> so. There's a bit of lore around the, the can cut of Southland Tales, but for people who are not familiar with that story, um, what is the difference between the can cut and the version of a movie that people may have seen in theaters or, or you know, that was been formally released since then? Uh, well, the, the, the can version is what we brought to can in 2006 and we showed at, showed there in competition. And then their theatrical version was the, what we cut down and, then uh, was released theatrically like a little over a year later in you know in the in a few theaters and we barely got released but then uh they came out on blu-ray so this can version hasn't really been seen since 2006 since it, it played at the festival i think there's been stuff floating around on online and stuff like that but this is a a, a restoration uh, of that version of the film and of the of the theatrical cut of the film and um you know i just always want to give people the caveat when they're uh, when they're watching the the can version, for them to know that it's not finished, it's a, it's like a it's like a work in progress version of of the film with a lot of unfinished visual effects, but it has a lot of the uh, expanded uh, scenes and, and and a bigger, more uh, substantial v version of the story with some stuff that I think is uh, will be exciting for fans to to finally get to see. You say that the the can cut of the of Southland Tales is unfinished and it's missing uh, special effects and maybe some of the gloss that would end up in the, in the final version of the film. But despite that, do you think that there's there's an audience for this version of the film that will actually appreciate it and like it more than the one that was eventually released, or is this more for people who love the movie to to see you know the sort of work in progress? I think that the can cut will be. Um... I think it'll be interesting for people to see the the deleted scenes and the extended scenes and some more of the um, the metaphysical uh, stuff that was sort of left on the cutting room floor for the theatrical version. So I think it'll be exciting for people to see th those additional scenes, but it might be a little frustrating at the same time because you're you're seeing so many unfinished visual effects. So it's sort of um, kind of like a mixed. Uh, response maybe that you might have if you if you enjoy the film and you're a fan of it you're excited to see these new scenes but then maybe you're frustrated because you're seeing uh a bunch of unfinished visual effects and and, and stuff that just doesn't feel like it's it's not finished yet you know so i'm i'm glad for kind of posterity's sake that we're getting the canned version out there but at the same time my biggest goal is to still finish the much bigger grand version of Southland Tales that I've, I've been working uh, pretty diligently on over the, the past few years, but really this, this past year, I've been working a lot on it during the, the pandemic. So. Yeah. I remember that time that I came down to meet you, you were talking then a lot about how the special effects were cost prohibitive and how it was just going to be impossible to get the movie the way that you envisioned it to, to, to look the way that you envisioned it because of the the cost of the technology and the expertise uh, i imagine that that's come down exponentially um, and, and i'm sure you've thought a lot about what it would be like to make that movie now oh yeah yeah i mean i think they're they, don't they call it, is it called moore's law that like a microchip a processor a computer chip just each 
year gets exponentially faster or more powerful. I'm, I'm misquoting the whatever that law is, but you can kind of apply that to visual effects uh, technology and in terms of um, rendering and just the the power of these computers and of the all these visual effects software and animation softwares that we have access to now. Um, there's just so much more that we can do with like the bigger version of Southland Tales that I've been working on. And it, it's a, also a question of animation, uh, uh, animation techniques that have evolved significantly where you're, um, you're talking about, in some cases, possibly a rotoscope style animation that you can uh, use for actors and their performances, but there's also motion capture. And there's sort of this new, this kind of blend in between the world of rotoscope and motion capture. It's now, uh, there's just all different kinds of possibilities in the way that computers can uh, render performances and in creating CGI backgrounds, even if they're not completely photo real, that they have, um, uh, a stylized quality to them where you can build gigantic worlds or send your actors, you know, to Iraq or Afghanistan or all over the world uh, and, and build environments in ways that would be cost prohibitive uh, to shoot in live action. So I, I think that the, the toolbox that we have to work with now in 2021 is significantly uh, more exciting than uh, what we had 15 years ago to work with. So. Can you set up the experience of of going to and being a can with this film, and and especially you know an unfinished cut of the film? And, and on that, is is it is it common for people to bring works in progress to to can? It's happened before. Um, I think it's 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 um, probably hasn't happened to the degree the degree that we went to the festival with a film that was not finished. It was a very tough situation because. Uh, we had a film that cost about $17.8 million was the budget. And we needed a lot more money to really continue working on the visual effects and get it to where it needed to be. And we submitted uh, to the festival thinking it was a real long shot for us to get included in competition. And they really responded to the film. They really, really saw what we were trying to do and they saw how unique it was and the risks that we were taking. And we were invited into competition. And so it became kind of a, a race to try and get the film as presentable as possible. And knowing that we weren't really ever gonna get to the finish line in time, but to like withdraw and pull out of competition or just at the last minute say, I'm sorry, it's not ready, would have been really bad because we were invited and it was such a big deal to get invited and i didn't even know if we would ever get invited to any other festival because it was the film was i think such a wild card and it was so unusual and it was it was seen as such a risky endeavor at the time that you know had we like you know waited for say the toronto film festival or something we might not have been invited there so the fact that can opened its arms and invited us we figured it was worth the risk to just go with what we had and try and do our best and then and hopefully that a distributor would see potential in what we had and then a domestic distributor would help us get some more visual effects money and everything so we we did get sony on board and they bought the film but because of the the response was so uh negative from from a lot of the 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 press in Cannes uh, back in 2006, 
it became a, a huge challenge to get uh, more money invested in the film, uh, not only for visual effects, but just for a distribution and marketing or anything like that. I think the film was uh, so mortally wounded after the festival that it was just going to be, I was just going to get just a tiny bit more to work with. And um, so, yeah, I ended up having to, to get uh, college art students from, from Chapman University, these lovely um, art students <laughs> to, uh, to come and help us uh, finish some of the visual effects. So it was, it was just, um, it was tough, but you know, uh, that was kind of the, the road that the meant, the road that the film was meant to take, you know, uh, the road not taken uh, <laughs> to reference Robert Frost, you know, that we reference in the film, but uh, I think it was meant to have a long and winding road. And, you know, here we are all these years later and you know, maybe we'll really get it, hopefully another chance to do something really big and spectacular with, with what we have. Well, I love the movie and I always have. And I feel like the narrative that you were just alluding to, the story about it not quite succeeding at being good, you know, whether it's good or whether it's bad, uh, I feel like that totally misses the point. You know, do you want people to be making the most perfectly executed versions of the most logical stories possible every single time? Or is there room for people to be taking chances, especially young filmmakers who are finding their voice and, and needing to try uh, new things out to get there? I, I think it's great when not everything works and that that's not appropriate for every kind of film, certainly. But you only need to watch two seconds of Southland Tales to know that that's not what you're going for. You're not going for standard fare. You weren't going for mainstream action blockbuster. Um, did you ever feel punished for for trying some of this wild stuff out? Yeah, yeah, I think you know it. It's definitely um, it's tough when you take a big risk and then um, you have a, a public unveiling of a film and, and it, it doesn't go well at a festival, and then you know the, the film is wounded because it's hard to recover from something like that, you know? Um, and again, hindsight being 2020, I don't know if it would have ever been any different, you know, even had the film been more finished or more polished um, when we brought it to Cannes, the reception could have been just as bad. It could have just been that it was, the film was not ever going to, to really be able to achieve um, its proper, um, audience or to reach its full potential just because of the the nature of the business and then the nature of the way the world was um operating at that time you know so it's it's always tough um but i this film has always been near and dear to my heart it's going to always be my favorite film no matter how many i end up directing in my life uh it'll always southland Tales will always be my favorite film um and I, we had just such a, a fun time making it and getting to work with all these actors. It's one of those things you only really get to do probably once in your career is kind of take a big risk like that with this big, huge, sprawling material and getting all these actors to come in and, you know, to tell this huge complex story. It was just, we felt like we were doing something that was like a once in a lifetime chance. And, you know, I was, I was 30 years old when I directed this movie. So it's like, that's those are sort of risks that you, that you end up taking I think when you're younger and uh, you know whether the risk pays off or whether the, the risk makes your life uh, more challenging you know I don't know I I'm I will never regret uh, 
making this film, it'll always be one of the most joyous experiences I've ever had, you know? And so, and we're, we're still talking about it and there's a chance we can potentially do something really big and exciting with it now again. So I'm in this for the, for the long haul, you know, I'm not making a movie just for uh, what it will do uh, for me tomorrow. I'm making a film for what it'll do for me for the rest of, of my life, you know, for better or for worse. You know, if I believe in something, I'm going to, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna stick my neck out, and I'm gonna, you know, suffer the consequences or reap the rewards, you know, no matter how long it takes. <laughs> so, uh, you mentioned the cast, and they're just—it's such a good, weird, awesome collection of people that you put together to help you execute the the vision that you had. The actors are so committed uh, to the material, and you know, 15 years later, it really holds up as this is this. Uh, some some bold and interesting casting choices. Uh, what what do you remember about about casting the the movie? Uh, it was just the best time because I love all of these actors so much. They um, they all come from a different kind of place uh, in pop culture. They all there was sort of like a pop vitality to all the actors in a way, and I kept mentioning, I guess, Andy Warhol in, in my description of, of casting this film, because it maybe had something to do with celebrity and something to do with kind of um, the deconstruction of celebrity and what we were trying to do with, in the story, a lot of the actors are playing actors. You know, the, the Venice Beach crew, who's the neo-Marxist, they're all sort of like, stand-up comedians or slam poets, you know, or the, you know, when you have Krista with her pop song and, you know, and Boxer is an actor. So a lot of the characters were playing Hollywood types, these sort of fringe Hollywood types. And so to get all these performers who are coming from, you know, Saturday Night Live or Mad TV, or, um, you know, a lot of the, the actors were also pop singers, you know, Mandy Moore is a pop singer and Justin Timberlake is a pop singer. And, they were all coming from sort of coming into acting from pop culture uh, uh, avenue. We're all entering into the business from, you know, these places in pop culture. And then we had other people who were just beloved character actors who you remember from the eighties, you know, whether it's Curtis Armstrong, who you remember from Revenge of the Nerds and Zelda Rubenstein, who everyone remembers uh, from, from Poltergeist and, and just, these faces that you wanted to see kind of pop in where you're just like, Oh, I remember that person. Or, Oh, I, you know, have this wonderful memory of, of, uh, you know, of this performer. And so it was just, um, it was a thrill to get them all coming in into this wild story to commit to it. You know, I kept telling everyone your character believes in what they're doing. Like the, you, you can't, um, pretend that this is just like a farce. You have to believe in what you're doing. You know, you, you believe in, in your mission, whether you're a neo-Marxist or you're, you work for US Ident or you're, um, you know, a scientist or you work, you're a military person, wh wherever you're coming from in this story, you have to be committed, you have to believe in it and you have to almost engage with the material like it's a serious drama. And, and that was sort of the tone that I was going for and then you know, I had a lot of the Moby uh, score. Moby had contributed all these wonderful pieces of music. And so I had the music to play for people that I was explaining that that was like the heartbeat, uh, the, the sadness underneath um, the absurd story that we were telling. Um, 
So it was a lot of very specific decisions that, you know, we really worked hard to try and make work. The Rock had only been acting in films for a few years uh, up to this point and mostly doing action movies. I guess he'd done a few funny things too that showed that he could be a really diverse type of performer. But I imagine that this is sort of the prime era for him in figuring out what kind of choices he wants to make, what the road is that he wants to take as a, as a film actor. Uh, and so the, the choices that he's making about the movies that he's a part of are pretty important. Um, did you have any idea what, to, what you could expect from him as an actor, you know, I, I imagine it's a it was a surprise to a lot of people who saw this movie that he was game to be as uh, goofy and, and kind of, you know, down to be in something as weird as this was. Yeah. Well, I had this wonderful meeting with Dwayne. Um, we were in Venice Beach where I lived at the time. And Dwayne used to work out at Gold's Gym in Venice Beach. And I went to the gym as well. And so we both met right next to gold's gym at this restaurant called the firehouse where um they have like these big bodybuilder uh breakfast meals and everything and he ordered like the biggest steak i've ever seen anyone order <laughs> and then there's like a gigantic bowl of broccoli and everything so i'm sitting here watching Dwayne just devour this gigantic meal after having worked out at gold's gym and i had all my visual presentation for him i had like mega zeppelin schematics and like all sorts of visuals to show him the world of Southland Tales. And he was just immediately uh, engaged and excited. And I just thought this guy is one of the most exciting actors I've ever met. Um, I think he's a gigantic movie star. And I was just so excited that he was ready to come make this crazy movie and to play Boxer Santeros and uh, listen to all of my um, complex uh direction about the schizophrenic nature of the character about Jericho Kane and his screenplay and you know all the little uh, uh facial movements and the sort of uh the you know Ralph Meeker from Kiss Me Deadly uh I had him watch Deadly and so he was just he he is is fearless and he's not afraid to take chances and to to try new things and to kind of uh do really off the wall comedic stuff. He's he's not afraid of any of it, you know. Um, and he was the only person who could have played that role. I mean, I don't think anyone else could have pulled it off like, like him because he's very unique. There's no one else like him. And again, I thought all of the the amazing training that he had for so many years in the pro wrestling ring was the, some of the best training for a performer to have. Um, I, I think we should be looking at a lot more pro wrestlers for, to look for our tomorrow's movie stars. I really believe it's uh, it's a, an amazing um, theatrical realm for someone to, to figure out uh, their sort of persona as a performer and just mixed with the acrobatics and the sort of improvisation and the, just the, the bravado and the humor that comes along with uh, being a pro wrestler. I just think that that's a, a wonderful uh, background. And I think Dwayne sort of was the pioneer um, of that transitioning, you know, from from wrestling into into acting. And yeah, it was just um, a real joy to get to work with him right at that kind of early uh, crossroads, I guess, of, of his career and my career as well. 
Sarah Michelle Gellar is also really excellent in the movie, and I think that her performance and the character that she plays, Krista, now, I think they, I think they hold up really, really well 15 years later. Uh, one of the ideas around her in the movie is that she's trying to start a revolution by developing a personal brand, and I think that's you know, supposed to be sort of a, a funny riff on the reality shows and the kind of star that was beginning to emerge uh, in that world in the mid-2000s. Uh, but the idea that personal brands and, and, and doing things just for the sake of getting attention are really what matter to some degree in terms of getting people to not only pay attention to you, but to your ideas as well and to follow you into whatever crazy chaos you want to commit. I mean, that seems like you're making a joke uh, that ended up looking a lot more like a prediction of something that came true pretty quickly uh, afterwards. Would you agree? Well, this was, we shot the film in 2005. So People were still using MySpace when we shot this film, <laughs> you know, um, that the iPhone had not been invented yet. Um, so we were we were just at the birth of social media and pre iPhone. And I think Kim Kardashian hadn't quite become queen of that branding reality uh, realm. So we were sort of riffing on a lot of that and building upon a building upon pop culture in 2005 and, and where all the branding, we could see where it might be headed. Uh, and we had no idea that it would really become uh, such a, like a juggernaut where you would have these people building all these ancillary uh, marketing uh, elements around their persona. You know, people who really aren't um, artists really, they're just kind of like personalities or celebrities that just exist sort of as celebrities. So it was sort of, we were at a crossroads, like right in the, in the middle of that decade, I think, where a lot of things were starting to take off. Uh, the movie got a really limited release when it came out, and it didn't land with much of an audience at the time. But over the years, it's developed uh, a pretty substantial fandom. And I wonder how much you've thought about the way that that happened, like how people came to this movie, even though it wasn't something that was a big hit when it came out. And um, you know, I also wonder, do you, do you hear from people? Have you heard from more people over the years that, that, uh, that, that have discovered this movie and, be, and were affected by it? Yeah, I think the, the perception of the movie has changed um, significantly over the past, I'd say, five years. Um, people have really come around to the film. I think they see it in a completely new way. Um, I think probably has a lot to do with what's happened in the world and um, who became president of the United States. You know, I think that the world took a, a sharp detour into just crazy. Um, the whole world has gone completely crazy and the film just plays completely different now than it did, you know, 14 years ago when we premiered it at Cannes. Um, the world has just changed so significantly. Uh, that there, there's just something that feels fresh about the movie and even watching the can version, even with all the unfinished effects and stuff, it feels like it's just like getting in a time machine in a way and going back to 2006, but it feels like you're watching something new and, you, and you're, it feels like you're watching something that is kind of about today in the world we're living in now, but it was made, you know, 15 years ago. So it, it has this, this time dislocation quality, I think when you watch it and that's very interesting. And it's not, it's something I could have never predicted that, 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 that the film would kind of finally find its way and find its audience. Um, but 
it's given me so many ideas and what I'm working on for the future and, and the new kind of um, level of the, of the story that I've kind of opened up and then I've been developing that I think is really exciting. And so I think there could be a potentially like a real uh, time travel um, component in a new layer to the story that I think could really take it to the next level. And I'm excited to, to see if I can make it work and, we can make it happen. So, well, yeah, I hope so. It was really good to talk to you again and hear some of the backstory of how Southland Tales came to be, and also uh, hear some of your ideas for how you might develop it out further in the future. Yeah, there's a lot there. It's there's a, a lot of um, new material, and I think it's stuff that even people who've seen the movie 20 times will be like, "Oh my God, I never realized that," or "I never figured out that this could lead to that." and there's just a whole lot more story there. And I, I think it's working. Like I'm pretty confident that it's gonna be exciting for people if, if we can if we can finally get it made. Right on, man. Well, well thanks, uh, thanks for talking. It was good. Okay, thank you. And thank you for listening to Movie Maker Podcast. You can check us out at moviemaker.com where pretty much every day we post stories about movies and movie making and movie makers. You could subscribe to Movie Maker's print magazine. That's where Movie Maker started out, and it's still going strong. It's a great magazine if you are someone interested in the art and craft of movie making. I bet you are if you're listening to this podcast. You can follow us on social media at Movie Maker Mag and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and say a nice thing or two about us while you're there, would you? We'll be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker, and we hope you'll be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves.